1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am joined today by Daniel Campo, who is the author of Post-Industrial DIY, Recovering American Rust Belt Icons, from Fordham University Press. Dan, welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, so before we turn our attention to the book, I wonder if you might tell folks just a little bit about who you are and what it is that brought you to this project.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm the chair of the Department of Graduate Built Environment Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore. And uh, the department has uh, graduate programs in architecture, landscape architecture, and city planning. I'm also the director of the graduate program in city planning at Morgan State. So I wear those hats. I have a doctorate in city planning. I have a master's in city planning. I was once a planner for the New York City Department of City Planning, and that's probably where my interest in industrial places really coalesced, and uh, I, I grew it out as I returned to school and uh, eventually became a faculty member at Morgan State.
1: All right, terrific. So. Um... So you've got five cases that you focus on in the book, two in Buffalo, two in Detroit, and one in Pittsburgh. Um, I wonder if we might start by having you maybe just sort of lay out the what you think of as the overall theme of the book. Tell us a little bit about each of those cases, and then maybe we can turn to one or two of them and dig in a little bit more deeply.
0: Sure. Uh, that's great. So uh, like I said, I had a long interest in industrial places, and no surprise, we you go around American cities and you see that these these places have been abandoned and in many places they don't actually exist anymore. Um, economic and deindustrialization, suburbanization, uh, the flight of capital and so on has reaped havoc with so many American cities, particularly in the area that we call the Rust Belt. Um, but the places of this book are places of great architectural distinction, of architectural majesty, of uh, cultural significance. Holders of not just the history of their particular cities and regions, but also the country at large. And in, in my mind, they are places that embody the the history of modernity. Right? These are these are places, factories, uh, shipping piers and wharves, railroad stations, refineries, iron mills. The list goes on. That are they're incredible places, but yet at the same time that they're incredible, they've they've gone through perhaps decades of decay and decline. They've been abandoned, and they're the bane of mayors. mayors governors, their appointees want to see these places demolished and cleared. They're markers of failure. They're places of environmental degradation, environmental hazards. They produce nothing economically and mayors want to see these places gone. So the political and economic establishment wants to eliminate these places and redevelop them with something, anything, even if it's just a warehouse or a yeah. office park, right? So, but because of, because these places are still very prominent in the landscape in these cities and, and they have a kind of intriguing beauty, citizens, residents of their cities have rallied around them in various forms in each of those case studies that uh, we're about to talk to the the coalescing of citizen groups and what i call protagonists who do things at these sites who work incrementally to recover these sites is different they they have different purposes and they're involved in in it for different meanings but the point is is that these places speak to people on a on a kind of almost visceral level and people are attracted to these places and want to be part of the recovery of their cities these places are sites of possibility of imagination places where the future might be possible rather than as the mayor see it a kind of past the past, the, the markers of failure, right. Yeah. So I've got five sites that I've looked at, um, two railroad stations, a, a railroad station in Buffalo, a railroad station in Detroit, um, an automobile factory, the Packard automobile factory in Detroit, which it was at the turn of the century, the largest, and most modern automobile factory ever built and provided a kind of prototype in its buildings for all of the, the factories that would follow in the automobile industry and in others as well, designed by the great industrial Detroit-based industrial architect, Albert Kahn. Uh, in Buffalo, I'm also looking at a, a kind of campus of grain elevators that's now evolved into a site called Silo City. Um, four different grain elevators. Um, Buffalo was the greatest, largest grain port in the world for much of the 20th century. It's where grain came through from the upper Midwest and was shipped to the east or to other countries.
1: And these are massive structures, right? I mean, monuments. Yeah, they are.
0: the, The Detroit excuse me, the Buffalo grain elevators uh, were inspirational to architects and cultural modernists as soon as they were built. They were celebrated by Le Corbusier and Eric Mendelssohn and Walter Gropius. And in fact, they were trading, this is as they were forming what would become uh, modernism, European architectural modernism, they were trading images of these uh, new structures and drawings. Because many of them hadn't visited them yet, so that's uh, I think I've got the two train stations, uh, the grain elevators, right, and this is this is a kind of a showstopper as well, um, a iron mill, the, the Andrew Carnegie's flagship iron mill, the carry blast furnaces that was part of U.S. Steel's flagship plant for the the first half of the 20th century, the Homestead Steel Plant, which is uh, about 10 miles outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So all of these sites, what they have in common, they're, they're all different, mm-hmm. but they have a history of decline and abandonment. You know, The Packard Automobile Factory was abandoned in, by the Packard Company in 1956, just a few years before it itself went bankrupt. And uh, that particular factory had uh, became an industrial park and and had different other uses, industrial and storage uses over the years. But by the early 20th century, it had been entirely abandoned, some four four million square feet of space and a couple of dozen buildings. So all of these places had been abandoned to, to some greater or lesser extent and deteriorated uh, before they became the subject and target of these, what I, for lack of a better term, a kind of community uh, recovery projects. Um, and they, they continue to grow. Each one of them continue to grow, and they become m- magnets for recovery and r- arguably regeneration. It, it's gotten people excited about the prospect of living and working and doing things in the Rust Belt, right? It's, it's, it's flipped the Rust Belt script in a way, right? And instead of the Rust Belt being play, uh, a definer of failure, of shrinkage, of population and job loss, it's become a kind of badge of honor, of symbol of pride and prestige. And this is a kind of a countercurrent, right? so this is a but it's a countercurrent that's growing and evolving over time with the success with the least partial success of these projects
1: so in in many of these cases we've 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 the 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 story at least to me becomes these these were sort of icons of our peak industrial age deteriorate our our symbols of of that decline um, but then often Although not always, um, because of the work of artists, of visual artists, of musicians, of actors, of, of of all kinds of of creative folks, they become cultural centers rather than industrial centers. Yes,
0: that's absolutely right. Yes, they've. I mean, the five the five sites all have this aspect, right, uh, to greater or lesser extents. Um, the site that probably has it in in its most prominent and exuberant form is Silo City in Buffalo. Um, it's it's a site with a very interesting history. Uh, they were four, I said, four different grain elevators, and they're they're towering. They're about uh, around a hundred feet high, and they're these undulating concrete forms, of individual silos that used to hold. Hold some sort of grain, typically wheat or corn, or soybeans or um, barley, and uh, they had progressively. They were owned by different companies at one point, and at one at at some point in the second half of the twentieth century, um, they were consolidated under one company and were progressively abandoned. The, the grain industry for lots of different reasons, moved to other places in uh, North America and, and the buffalo centri- buffalo became a lot less central as the decades as America spread out and um, the, we didn't need the, the water-based transportation. The, the reasons are complicated and maybe not entirely germane to our conversation. So these elevators were abandoned. And, um, you know, interestingly, at Silo City and in all the places in the book, accident plays a large role, right? So, in the case of Silo City, there was an owner of a, a metal fabrication facility, Rick Smith, who owned this facility right next door to these grain elevators. And he was interested in these elevators, had had known them all his life and he was interested in the buffalo river that where these grain elevators kind of they're all lined up along this river corridor and he in part he was interested in these elevators to uh, access some railroad tracks that were a part of them that would facilitate movement into and out of his uh, metal fabrication facility he he wound up buying all four for a very small uh, and he didn't know quite what to do with them. He was aware that they were architectural, architecturally significant and they were landmarks. Um, but he thought, okay, maybe I'll, you know, I'll reuse these to store grain that could be used as an, for an ethanol refinery that would be built along amid them. The uh, it, building an ethanol refinery is a, is a kind of complicated endeavor involving lots of permits and investors and all kinds of things. It takes a few years to do, like any big public work or industrial work. And uh, he ran into it, it didn't happen right away. And while he was gathering those permits and getting investment funds, the the bottom dropped out on. The ethanol market. This is around uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, just as we're going into the Great Recession. Um, so just as he got all the permits together, uh, the there was no market to build what he wanted to build, and uh, he was kind of back at square one. But while he was gathering those permits, he was allowing people the university at buffalo architecture school architectural tourists artists photographers into the site to engage with it to take photographs to do art experiments uh, to have some kind of uh, cultural gatherings on that site so so he already had understood these properties in a different way than their industrial properties and they must be used for an industrial purpose. And so he, around 2010 or so, he pivoted. In 2011, he pivoted. He said, you know, I' I'm doing that ethanol refinery wasn't a lot of fun anyway. I, it wasn't fun. It was angering people. Let me do this other thing. Let me see what I can do with this site, invite creative people down uh, to engage with it. I may not, know how they will engage with the site, but they, they are their own experts. They have their curiosity. They are, as you said, artists. They are filmmakers. They are uh, people who are modern dance. They're, they're doing modern dance there. They're visual artists. They're interested in industrial history. Let me invite people for tours. And incrementally, this place, four different grain elevators that were built separately—they're not—they weren't in one campus initially—evolved into something called Silo Cities, kind of experimental cultural grounds for festivals, for visual art, for performing arts, um, for environmental experiments, for reclamation, building stuff by hand on site, for industrial gardens and. Um, you know, DIY gardening, or lo- lo- I think better characterizes low tech gardening done with um, partnerships with school groups, with the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, with uh, local people who just want to be involved in a community reclamation project, with festivals about the river and creating access to a river that was the subject of uh, a Superfund cleanup a river that caught, in, fought, caught on fire in the 1960s, right? So um, Buffalo is changing, the river is changing, the meaning and purpose of places like Silo City are changing at the same time, the mayor, others, other leaders in Western New York are saying these are places that have no economic purpose, they're hazards, they should be taken down. In the case of Silo City, um, Rick Smith, the owner, kind of won the day and was able to program these places with these uses and, uh, you know, very, very spirited. I've been on site for, for several of them, including uh, Buffalo's Torrent Space Theater Company does these yearly productions where they uh, they write a play to be done on site, site-specific theater, um, engaging the site and engaging in uh, very broad and provocative American, typically American-themed um, subjects and a kind of open-ended uh, theatrical uh, happenings that also involve the audience. Right. So, so these are places that are are putting that I would argue are putting Buffalo on the cultural map, or. And Buffalo has a kind of a longer history of, of culture and the avant-garde and a history of uh, artists that go on to, you know, go back to New York City or go somewhere else, but they've cut their teeth in this kind of post-industrial environment, which Buffalo has. So, Silo City has evolved, it's become something else. It continues to evolve and now it is in its success it has attracted development and very conventional development in some respects right that professional uh, professional development has is now reclaiming parts of silo city but some of these cultural uses will continue on site as they have in the past so it's an evolving site you're going to have Apart apartments on that site, you're gonna have community spaces, maybe restaurants, uh, there may be some continuation of light industrial uses also, but for the most part, it's moving towards a kind of post-industrial um, adapt, what we call in, in historic preservation, adaptive reuse. It's moving towards that and there's in the mill buildings, not the elevators, but the adjacent mill buildings are now being redeveloped as apartments, some of them. But the grounds, a large portion of the grounds, will still be open to these kinds of activities, events, and experiments. Um, so that's Silo City. Uh, maybe you
1: want to. <laughs> yeah, I was, was going to say. So, what do you what do you think is is? A, I mean, first of all, you would characterize that as a success story, yes?
0: Absolutely, a success story. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about all of these sites is that. And if you look at the history of these sites, they are sites of failed plans and plans that fail to materialize. All five of the sites would have been cleared if governors and their appointees and mayors had had their way. Like, right? Let's let's demolish. Or if ethanol
1: had been profitable, right? Well, if (laughs) ethanol, although it still would have remained, yeah,
0: right. So parts of the the existing complex would have been would have remained, right? But in Right, so these are places of failed plans or plans that failed to materialize. And when you look at places that have been cleared, like um, in on, in Southwest Detroit, where I just came from a few days ago, uh, there's a the Cadillac plant, the, the factory that made Cadillacs for the United States, right? Uh, it's in Southwest Detroit, and uh, it gm moved out of that facility in 1987 and it was abandoned and uh by a decade later every single building on that site was cleared right it became a complete tabula rasa and what's replaced it is uh low density warehouse uses and some light industrial right so it's it's to economic leaders who have in Michigan who have spent millions and tens of millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars perhaps on that site it's a, it's a site of success right it's a site of where you know we've revived the city of detroit of the region we're we're continuing in its great legacy of industrial production and so on but i look at that site it's it's non urban it's It's a site that would be better, the uses on that site would be better on the urban fringe than in the middle of a reviving city. It's very close to, it's relatively close to downtown Detroit and about, and close to the train station as well that I I write about in the book, right? So success is often a kind of disputed, uh, it's disputed, right? Like, so the economic leaders say that that's successful. I say it hasn't been successful and has wiped away buildings that could have been used otherwise and wiped away the, the cultural character of Detroit. Can you imagine having your office or apartment, you know, this is where they used to build Cadillacs, right? That, the, the kind of the, how cool that would have been. Right. So, uh, and the same is true in places like um, this is really true in Detroit in, in Buffalo of the train station of the central, Terminal train station, where I see an evol- evolving recovery project that's been happening for decades, really since the mid '90s, um, where there are still leaders in, in the Buffalo region who say, "Well, you know, I don't see. You know, it's a humongous site. It's going to take hundreds of millions to revive. I, I don't see the the value in, in that kind of a place. Uh, it it could." fall down tomorrow although that's not true anymore at one time it was um, so i so success urban success is often disputed uh in the case of silo city i think at this moment that site it's like 100 percent. if you go to buffalo people know about it no it's not it's no longer a kind of secret in the know it's a place that people know of who uh, attend the events there um and people travel to it as well to see that site, and that was also true in its its earlier underground phase. At least with architectural tourists, they would say, "I, I got to go see those grain elevators in, in in Buffalo."
1: Do you think the the Michigan Central Station story is one in which sort of those political officials and development types and you and like minded folks? would agree that that's a kind of success?
0: I think so. At this point, they would. 15 years ago, they would have not. So
1: so tell us a little bit about, about that story. Maybe describe that building for people who have never seen it or seen pictures of it, because it is quite something.
0: Yeah, the Mich- Michigan Central Station or, or Michigan Central Depot or the train station, that's what people call it in Detroit, is a, a kind of one-of-a-kind building. It's a a great giant neoclassical structure based on the, roughly based on or inspired by the baths of Caracalla in Rome, the great uh, Roman public work, Um, and uh, finished in 1929, no, finished, I'm sorry, in 1913, the same time as uh, New York City's Grand Central Station, built by the same architects, Fellheimer and Wagner and uh, Reed and stem, these are prominent architectural firms of the early 20th century. And uh, just like every large or even small train station in the United States that these places have atrophied and died over, you know over many decades and were places of disinvestment, right? So, Um, The station was abandoned, uh, formally abandoned, by Amtrak and Conrail, the freight railroad, in 1988 and for decades was kind of open to the elements and invited uh, transgressive and illicit and illegal activities. So you had squatters in the building you had illegal dumping, you had people who went in and stripped the building of all these incredible interior fixtures and architectural details. Uh, if uh, the, the rapper Eminem shot his uh, one of his most famous videos in that building along with Tiger, nearby Tiger Stadium and the Packard plant, which I write about. Um, so this was a place of deterioration and abandonment. But not all of that story is terrible, right? And some of that story is um, about artworks, about visual art, about events that happened there. And uh, people who discovered it and who were just in awe of that place and um, saw it as a kind of symbol, a algeic symbol of, not, not just recalling Rome, but recalling Detroit in its own glory days, right? Yeah. The kind of mythic city. Of course, we, I talk about this in the book. I mean, Detroit is, has never been a place that's championed a, the kind of public life that we see in say New York city or Chicago. Um, it's, it's the, the place of automobiles of suburbanization, right? So a, The train station, of the great train station of Detroit, probably never had the full opportunity to grow and be cherished. Like, say, Grand Central or the former Penn Station in New York City. Um, Yet it survived. And the city, the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan, tried to demolish it on several occasions. They didn't have title to the property. They didn't have the money to demolish it. Um, they passed laws, they, they tried to get money from the American Recovery Act and, and the, the different, the different uh, federal legislation that was put together during the Obama years to bring the structure down. Um, none of it worked in part, again, because the city didn't own it, state didn't own it. Um, and yet, during all that time, the Michigan Central Station became kind of an international Countercultural symbol of the city and it generated all of these visits from international to national and international tourists who were interested in seeing this fallen monument you know people are inspired by industrial ruins and in yeah. in Germany there are large parks right where former steel plants former coal plants gazometers that have been um, minimally stabilized, not fully revitalized and uh, rebuilt, but minimally stabilized is kind of creating a ruins park, right? So Detroiters, some Detroiters anyway, said, hey, this is our ruins park. This is our symbol, our symbol to the fall of American corporate capitalism, which for better or for worse, Detroit embodies more than any other city in the United States, so it so that the place became a kind of destination for uh, ruins tourism, ruins photography what some people call ruins porn of course these are kind of complicated acts to deconstruct with both good and bad aspects I'm not saying that everything about this is good but, that building developed a kind of countercultural cool and prominence that actually it didn't ever enjoy enjoy when it was standing. The uh, American Institute of Architects in their 1971 guide to Detroit architecture, the first AIA guide to Detroit, didn't even include that building in its guide to Detroit architecture, right? 1971, right? So that's when the building was It was falling on hard times there, but it was still uh, over a decade and a half away from its abandonment, right? So as an abandoned building, it became more famous than ever. And because it became famous, it attracted the Ford Motor Company who said, you know, we want to come back to Detroit. This is the city where Ford was born that put, you know, Ford people always say that we put America on wheels, we put the world on wheels, right? So the Ford Motor Company had long wanted to come back to Detroit, they're based in Dearborn, they have plants and operations all over the world, but they lacked a significant presence in the city of Detroit. And they were attracted to the Michigan Central Station, precisely because it was this countercultural symbol, because it was cool, because it it also embodied the history of Detroit, but also, and it, it had this kind of countercultural history, and uh, eventually in two thousand eighteen, I believe they bought the they bought the the station and a bunch of other properties around it, and are now in the process of. Restoring the station, which will become it, uh, a hub of um, elect for electronic cars, and some of their research—not all of their research facilities—are moving to Detroit from Dearborn, but a, a good portion of them, and they'll do uh, research on, on uh, and development on uh, electric cars and on self-driving cars and. They're also renting out lots of the space to other like-minded uh, corporations, venture capitalists, uh, people interested in c- small firms that are interested in technology and so on. So, and I think Google has already taken out, uh, is renting a whole bunch of floors of either the station or the adjoining former mail, mail baggage building that was a part of the station complex, right? So they, Ford sees it, sees this narrative evolving, and they see value in both the the history and post history, the cultural and the countercultural, industrial and post-industrial, right? So this, this is a tremendous kind of narrative arc that almost nobody um, could have predicted, you know, 20 years ago. And Yet you know there it is. in, in, in two thousand nine and ten, angry members of the Detroit City Council were at a meeting, haranguing the mayor of Detroit of how come the mayor wasn't moving fast enough to demolish this building, this eyesore, this symbol of failure, this hazard. Right. So these places really have very interesting histories, and they're places of possibility and and Ford's. Purchase and renovation, restoration of this building is a kind of symbol of that. And one we can all get behind now.
1: You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking today with Daniel Campo, who's the author of Post-Industrial DIY, Recovering American Rust Belt Icons from Fordham University Press. And I encourage you to pick up the book for any number of reasons. First of all, you'll get much more detail on the cases we've talked about and some others we haven't talked about too much. But also, it is beautifully and richly illustrated. So you've got all kinds of fascinating photographs, many from the author himself, about these places. Uh, We've just been talking about the Ford renovation, architectural rendings of what that site is going to look like. So it really is this this lovely, rich, um, often elegiac, but often celebratory uh, look at both our past and perhaps our future. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Much
0: appreciated. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun.